but grew into the job, came to love it, became more pastoral in my leadership and loved the team that I was working with. Great pastoral staff. Did that for over eight years. And ironically, being in the ministry, doing the work of a worship pastor, God took me to the minor prophets. He took me to Amos and Micah. And he's like, you know what? I don't really care about your songs on Sunday if you are not living a life of justice. And that was convicting for me because I was not living a life of justice. I was living a life of comfort and ease. Hi, everyone. This is Ross, your host of Bear Crawl with Dads. So true confession, I'm completely leveraging this podcast for personal and selfish reasons. You see, not too long ago, I became a dad for the very first time, but with that, an older dad. So the one thing that I know so far is that this bear crawl as a dad is not meant to be done alone. We truly need each other. So may this podcast be that for you. So come along and let's bear crawl together. All right. Thank you so much for coming back to Bear Crawl with Dads. Thank you for joining in our conversation. And I am very honored to have my friend Adam Nevins join me. Adam, how are you? I'm doing well. Well, thank you for being here. And I did hear the recording audio sound that I was just sharing with you that I interviewed a friend of mine um, and only I uh, failed to hit record. So, oh, so we're, we're good to go. Okay. I get permission <laughs> for this recording to take place. There you go. Okay. It's official. All right. So Adam, just update the audience who you are. What do you do as a profession? You know, I graduated college. My plan A was to be a rock star. And so I'm a singer songwriter. I have a rock band. I've opened for John Mellencamp, Bowling for Soup, Avril Lavigne, Mandy Moore, a bunch of huge acts and talked to labels, never got signed. Our band was 80% awesome, and that is not enough <laughs> awesome to get signed to a label. So uh, I did what every guitar-playing Christian guy does, and I got a job as a worship pastor. And so my wife was like, we need health insurance. We're pregnant with our first child. You can be the worship pastor here, and you need to apply for that job. So did that. Um, I, I hated worship pastors at the time. I'm like, shut the hell up and just let me worship Jesus. You know, they always did the breathy voice, like, we're just going to worship the Lord today. We're just going to stand up. And this morning, we're just Lord this morning, Lord. We're just this morning going to worship you, Lord, this morning, Lord. Uh, oh, my gosh. So so I became one of those guys. I became the worship pastor. You were that guy. And, well, I was like, stand. And then we would play the songs. So I didn't want to talk at all. I was like, we're just playing playing the song. So no and then, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't whisper. I'm, I'm too loud for that. Okay. But grew into the job, came to love it, became more pastoral in my leadership and loved the team that I was working with. Great pastoral staff. Did that for over eight years. And ironically, being in the ministry, doing the work of a worship pastor, God took me to the minor prophets. He took me to Amos and Micah. And he's like, you know what? I don't really care about your songs on Sunday if you are not living a life of justice. And that was convicting for me because I was not living a life of justice. I was living a life of comfort and ease. Mm. And so I began to volunteer on the missions team at church. I got involved in a number of different nonprofits with Serve Life International and International Justice Mission and Love 146. I helped start two different nonprofits in Indianapolis and really started to go down that road, started reading books and getting mentors and really wanted to make a shift into nonprofit leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that opportunity arose for me at the beginning of 2012. So at the end of 2011, 
I was planning a benefit concert for this nonprofit, Stir Life International. They work in India and Nepal. Mm-hmm. And the, the chairman of the board uh, met with me and I thought we were going to talk about this concert that I was planning. And he was like, hey, do you want to run this thing? Because we need an executive director and we're struggling right now and we need to reboot it and rebrand it. Mm-hmm. And we think that you might be the guy to do that. And I had been on a, a few d- different trips to India and Nepal with Sir Life International. I love the work that they do. I knew all the international directors had a real passion for it. And so my only hesitation was that they were tight on money at the time. So they could only guarantee me two months salary. And, you know, my wife and I prayed about it for three weeks and we just heard God saying yes. Mm-hmm. And so we took a step of faith and stepped into that role. And so that was the beginning of 2012. So now over 10 years now, I've been the executive director of this nonprofit and I just love it. I mean, I get to go on these trips normally twice a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get to see the work that God is doing in India and Nepal of equipping pastors to plant churches and remote villages where there is no church, of educating children and providing for orphans and equipping families living in extreme poverty, less than $2 a day with small business loans so that they can escape extreme poverty. And so I've been able to watch this happen for, I've been on staff for 10 years now and a volunteer for 20 years. And I love seeing what God is doing through this ministry. And I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. Wow. That's incredible, Adam. And thank you so much for sharing all that. And it's crazy that you've been doing it for 10 years now. I mean, time <laughs> yeah, yeah, really flies that it's been 10 years. And just remind the audience again of the organization that they may check out the website and be f- more familiar with what you do. So it's Serve Life International, S-E-R-V-L-I-F-E dot org. Well, definitely uh, check that out, see what they're doing. I have some firsthand knowledge with the organization, so it's incredible. And I think what I've been so excited about this opportunity to get to visit with you. Um, as you know, as I've shared with you, I'm leveraging this podcast to talk to dads because I'm an old new dad. Uh, I have a son of, who's 19 months now. And so... Mm. I want to leverage the podcast and kind of pick the brains of those that have gone before me to say (laughs) uh, any warnings, uh, any heads up, and really just to to pick your brain and and to hear your insight and thoughts about being a dad. But but not only just to get to talk to you, because I know um, your most prized possessions, you are a father. So I want to hear about that. But also, too, possibly just your involvement of overseas what are you seeing out there with our dads across the ocean? You know, are they, are you seeing kind of the same frustrations or temptations that is it universal that kind of what you're seeing, you know? So I would love to to pick your brain about that real quick. I want to share two quotes before we get into the questions, which I just came across this week. And this is one is from Frederick Douglass. It says it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. C.S. Lewis, you can't go back and change the beginning but you can start where you are and change the ending. So I thought those were really two powerful quotes. So with that, I wanted to ask you, what has been your greatest joy as a dad? For me, it's not a singular thing, right? So there's, sure. there have been key points in the path. Uh, so I think that moment, you know, when you first find out that you're going to be a dad, mm-hmm. and uh, I really wanted to be a, a dad, and mm-hmm. so I, you know, when I was a teenager, I would babysit kids and I really liked kids and really looked forward to becoming a, a father someday myself. Mm-hmm. When I was, you know, dating in college and stuff, I was really thinking about, you know, is this woman, someone that's going to be a good co-parent, a, a good 
mother to my kids, a good co-parent alongside of me? Do we balance each other out? And I married very well in that regard. Uh, my <laughs> wife is an incredible mother, so loving and kind and patient and compassionate. She teaches me so much about parenting. And uh, honestly, whenever I'm like, I, I'm not sure what to do in a parenting situation, I think, what would my wife do in this situation? <laughs> well, and I try to do that. What a tribute. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. And so, you know, when my kids are born, I, that was just such a joy. We had kids young. I got married at 22. And two years later, we had our first child. Carolyn was born in 2002 and just so much fun having your first kid. And then my second daughter, Emily, was born 18 months after that. And that was just a, an overwhelming joy as well. You, mm-hmm. You're not sure after you have your first kid, you're like, am I going to feel this same way about the next kid? Like, I don't even think that's possible. I don't think my heart's big enough. And I, your heart grows, your capacity for love grows. Wow. And that happened to me when Emily was born. And it was also just so amazing to see how different those two girls were from each other. Hmm. So even though they, they were both from my wife and I, they had different personality things from my wife and I and other things that are unique to them and they're very different individuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, so it's just beautiful to see their personalities come into play and develop over time. That was really neat. And then honestly, we went through uh, two miscarriages that were really tough. And mm-hmm. the, the second one, we were, I think, near the end of the first trimester. And so we were about to start sharing with friends. And we had a lot of friends at church that all got pregnant right around the same time. And so, you know, going through that miscarriage is really difficult. And then, you know, eight and a half months later, all our friends started having, you know, kids and we did not have our kid at that time. And so it was like this second wave of grief that hit us mm-hmm. and one in every third pregnancy ends in a miscarriage. And that's not a statistic that was in my premarital counseling. And I really think that uh, miscarriages need to be more normalized and need yeah. to be Something that gets talked about a lot more, especially in church community. Yeah. Um, because once my wife and I opened up about it, so many of our friends started to share that had never shared before about that grief and processing through that grief. You know, I, I remember my wife and I were talking about it one night and she just shared how, you know, it's kind of this ongoing grief where it's like, like you're waiting for Christmas, but it never comes. Mm-hmm. We had two miscarriages before um, we were blessed with our little man, Ford. So I, I, I know what you're going through. And that was, to your point, I'm glad you brought that up and being vulnerable. That was not shared. It wasn't in our vernacular. And so when yeah. it did happen, it was really tough. And then as a, as a husband to my, try to be that strong support for my wife, it, it, you're mm-hmm. not just like, what do I say? What do I do? And so I think you're right. It just, it's not talked yeah. about, but also too, I mean, how would I have known until I got married and was going through this, but how right, many, right. but it, and I think that's wow. That fact is, is kind of mind blowing because how many women out there that we don't know that are really have gone through that and it's mm. how, how, how tough it was and how tough it is. So I'm, I'm glad you brought yeah. that up because we, we walked through that as well. You know, kind of tied to that when that happened, I was a worship pastor at the time and talked to my wife about it. And when I got up on Sunday morning to lead worship, I was not in a great space. I was grieving. I was confused. I was questioning things about God. And I got up there on stage and I just told everybody what happened. Mm. And I told him that we had just had a miscarriage. I told him that I was struggling. 
And I said, I'm going to sing some songs today that I don't fully believe, but I, I suspect that they are true. And I just want you to join me in this. And so I, I think as, as Christian leaders, as dads, we're tempted to hide our struggles, to hide our emotions, mm-hmm. to hide what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we model the process of working that out in front of our kids, in front of our family, in front of our church. And I think that vulnerability builds trust. And we have to be willing to be vulnerable, even as dads, we're not perfect. And if we pretend to be perfect, our kids are going to see right through it because they know who we really are. And so I think it's important for us as dads, as leaders to, to be vulnerable, to be willing to share the struggles that we're going through. You know, some, some of that you have to discern, you know, some of it might not be appropriate to share as much as we can model you know, what it's like to go through those emotions, the highs and the lows, the rejoicing and grieving, uh, for them to see that you're a whole complete balanced person and that you have the same kind of struggles that they have. It helps kids feel like they don't have to hide their negative feelings when they experience them. I love that point, Adam. And, but it's, it's, I think too, maybe our generation, I don't know about you, but what you surrounded yourself growing up as far as models, you know, of, of men, but you know, definitely my dad in, in that generation of you go to work and you don't really share your emotions that much. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I guess part of my DNA and my family is like, my arm could be falling off and I'm like, Ross, how are you doing? I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, how are you? You know, and, and we don't necessarily want to be vulnerable, but I remember I went through some, I had some panic attacks, um, cause I, I bottle things up cause I don't want to mm-hmm. reveal, I don't want to show my vulnerability cause I got to keep it together. Growing up in the church, my family, we don't let our guard down, if you will, but my body, mm-hmm. my body can only take so much. And so my body's like, if you're not going to deal with this, then I'm going to smack you and we, we're going to deal mm-hmm. with this. And so I thought I was having heart attacks. I thought I was whatever, but it was panic attacks. And so I remember a friend of mine saying, hey, you really should think about going to a counselor. I was like, no, 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 no. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> that is, no, you don't do that. And mm-hmm. finally, I was, it was a, I kept on like a boom. I just kept on going into the cycle of panic attacks. And so finally, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, you got me, mercy. And I went, and it was the most freeing thing to be able to share with somebody just all the junk and who didn't know me and to sit mm-hmm. there and go, and he's a Christian counselor, but sit there and go, you're normal. Like you are mm-hmm. normal. And that was medicine to my soul. It was just, it was great. And then yeah. uh, right before I moved uh, back to Houston, I was kind of a late addition to this already well-established men's group in the morning. Uh, once a week, they would meet in the morning and they were really well established. And I think that's important because I remember a guy sharing something very vulnerable that he was really struggling with pornography and he said it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, A, that he said that, and these are mm-hmm. adults, these are, all of them were pretty much except myself and my other friend were married. And yeah. the fact that they would share that they had children, but I was like that he, he felt so safe and so supported that he shared that and there was not nobody nobody flinched nobody it didn't skip a beat you know it was just a very loving just like okay so mm. how can we we're going to walk through this with you we're here for you and it was beautiful just that yeah. vulner, that vulnerability and that openness i think and so i don't know if with guys it takes us a while to kind of just share right. and uh, i thought i'm thankful that you brought that up so after those two miscarriages, 
my wife and I decided, you know what, maybe this is the time where we're supposed to adopt. Mm. And I've had positive experiences with adoption growing up. My two cousins that I'm closest to were both adopted. And uh, I had two youth pastors when I was a teenager that were both adopted. And so I just had a really positive view of adoption. So before my wife and I got married, we talked about adoption because I, I wanted to marry someone that was open to it. Mm-hmm. And she was. And so, so after we had been through these two miscarriages, it was like, you know what? Why don't we explore this whole adoption thing at this time? Uh, and for us, I don't know why exactly, but we just defaulted to international adoption because I'd been volunteering with Serve Life that was doing work in India. We kind of gravitated toward India. Uh-huh. And uh, so ended up adopting our son in India. And I, you know, I remember we, we flew to Kolkata and uh, he was 10 months old and we brought him home and, you know, we went into the orphanage and got to meet him and, you know, I held him up and he just smiled in my face and it was just like, yes, this is my son. And, you know, we, we drove uh, back to the hotel and he fell asleep on my shoulder you know, it, it's like 90 degrees, 95 degrees in Kolkata, no air conditioning in the car, really hot. And like my son is just like cuddled up next to me, his son's on my shoulder, or his head's on my shoulder. And it just felt like, yes, like this is my son. And watching him grow up, it's been amazing <laughs> and weird and ironic how similar he is to me, mm. where he and I both have some really weird quirks. Like we, we're hyper smell, uh, we just have hyper smell. So we'll walk into a room and be like, what is that smell? And everybody else is like, what are you talking about? And it's just like, I don't know. Like we just, we can smell. <laughs> and we both recognize like artists on the radio. Like we recognize the voice of the artist super well. So if there's a new song on the radio, my son's like, oh, that's this person. And you're like, dude, how did you know that? And like, he can just hear it. He just recognizes it. And I'm the same way. So there's that's a lot so of weird cool. things like that. Yeah. Uh. So bringing him home was a huge joy. You know, the birth mm-hmm. of my two daughters was a joy. Bringing my son home uh, adopted was a, a huge joy. My most recent joy is really having older kids where, you know, my oldest is uh, 20, almost 21. Uh, Emily is 19 and David is 16. And so their brains are more developed now and they can have like adult conversations. And so it's really exciting to be able to have this more meaningful, deeper adult conversation with your kids Mm -hmm. that have grown up now and they're processing life. They're processing how they're going to live their lives and what morals they're going to adopt for that and what lenses they're going to have for making decisions. And being able to process that through with them is a huge joy for me now. I'm not there yet, but I can see where that could be really, really cool, right? To have those adult conversations. Do you remember anything about, because right now I'm in the, I'm in the, you know, the woes of, it's not, we're not doing the, <laughs> the middle of the night diaper changes or anything like that, but we're definitely doing a little bit right. of where you're just weary. Do you remember any of that or is it just a big fall? Oh yeah, man. So I think that a kid's life is broken into three different sections. The first six years of parenting are very physically demanding and therefore they are also like emotionally and mentally demanding because there's a lot of demands on the physical. You have to do a lot for your kids. You have to provide a lot for them. Very beginning, you have to physically like change their diapers and feed them food. It, like It's just very intense and you don't get a lot of sleep at the very beginning. And so those first six years, like you're taking care of the kid like all the time that they're awake and it's very demanding. The next six years are a lot easier 
And so like the kids mostly like you, they can get their own breakfast in the morning. They start going to school. And so you're not having to care for them all day long, every day. So it just gets a little bit easier. It's a little bit fun. Uh, you can <laughs> have some fun, stupid conversations. You could be like a silly dad and it's just a blast. The last six years are a lot more demanding emotionally and spiritually. Okay. And so those kids are now growing into adults and they're teenagers and they've got, you know, emotions popping up that didn't exist before. They've got, you know, hormonal stuff going on. Mm -hmm. They've got brain development stuff going on. They've got physical, you know, stuff going on with adolescents. And so helping to parent them through all of that requires a lot of just mental, emotional, spiritual engagement. So it, it's hard again, but in a different way. And there can be a lightness to that, but it is very demanding. So, so I see those as the, kind of the three phases of parenting. I love that. I love that. And that's, that is really good to know because I, this is a young man's sport and I'm, I'm not a young man. I'm not a young man. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, hang in there, bro. Gracious. I, I'm sleeping really, really well. But, you know, I, I do, I have worked with middle school kids and for many, many, many years. I'm back in the elementary school world for the last yeah. four years. So it definitely is that stage of they, they think you're cool, even as a quote teacher. You know, but having worked with middle school kids, I could definitely see start seeing that transition, right? Which makes sense. And kind of get your various challenges. And you, you've kind of addressed that, I guess, a little bit. But I think, too, in middle school, right? I mean, that's physically, that's the next biggest physical changes in an adult's life. You know, zero to three years old, you see yep. huge, huge. And then middle school, right? When puberty hits and the, the synapses are, you know, reforming. And you literally ask a kid, like, why'd you do that? And, you know, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> they, really, they, they really don't know because they're right, right, right. Their synapses are all, you know, rewiring and all that kind of good stuff. But, but, you know, they, they move from that parent approval. Like the assumption is I got my parents approval, but now yeah. it's peer approval and the peer pressure. Mm -hmm. So now where do I stack up with my friends? You know, um, am I the, right. do I take on the role of the comedian, the jock, the nerd, whatever, to, to here's my identity, either just I want to put on this facade to survive the middle school years, right? Or, and I think, to, and that's a whole other conversation maybe, but as adults, mm -hmm. are we still kind of living in those middle school identities, you know, of, mm -hmm. well, I, I survived middle school by being the comedian, so I'm going to survive my adulthood as the comedian, right? So, um, yeah. But, I, I love the fact that your greatest joys, you, you shared that, some of them, but, but also to what has been the greatest challenges as a dad? So I think two things come to mind. One, the two quotes that you gave at the beginning of this podcast really resonate with me because I, I'm an Enneagram one, which is the, the reformer. So I'm always tweaking stuff, trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also some perfectionist tendencies that come in with that, where I want to nail parenting. I want to get it right. In my mind, there must be a right way to parent. Like if you do X, you know, plus Y, then Z will happen. And if we just get the formula right and we raise the kid and we take them to church and we, you know, teach them this principle, like they're going to turn out okay. And it's going to be great. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> There's what there are, there are bad parents that have produced some amazing adults. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are some incredible parents that have produced some terrible adults. So you just don't have control of it. And I have struggled with that. I want there to be a formula. I want there to be, 
you know, read this book, follow the directions, and then it's all going to turn out right. And it just doesn't work that way. Knowing that now I have beat myself up a lot on the mistakes I have made in my parenting. Mm. And I I don't think that's good. I don't think it's healthy. I think we're all going to make mistakes and we need to move on from those. Some Mm -hmm. of those you may need, you may need to apologize to your kids for in the moving on process, but we're not perfect. We're going to mess up and we're going to make mistakes along the way. It doesn't mean that we suck, but it means that we can, you know, tweak it and get better and, and learn and grow. I think that has been a struggle for me, just the perfectionist tendency side of it. Yeah. Where like, I want to get it right. I want to do the right thing. And it's just, it's not possible. There is no formula. There is no, you know, 100% right way to raise a child. And so giving yourself grace in that, uh, that has been hard for me. It's been hard for me to give myself grace. And uh, I'm fine at receiving God's grace, but receiving Adam's grace is a lot harder than God's grace. And I think that that relationship with God, I think is so critical and you know, Ross, you and I, you know, you mentioned, you know, our, our dads grew up in a time where they were kind of the manly men and, you know, shoved down their emotions and stuff. And our dads were not perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's good things about our dads for sure, but there's also imperfect things about mm-hmm. our dad. And I think a dad's kid is the worst critic of that dad, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. kids are so hard on their parents and they're so critical of their parents. And I, I'm the same way. I'm, I was super critical of my parents growing up. And so Understanding that God is not a father the same way that your dad was a father, that God is the perfect father, that he loves you no matter what. He is always there for you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He doesn't always rescue you from every situation that you want rescued from, but he is with you through all of those tough times. Mm -hmm. And he is with you on the mountaintop as well. And so, you know, learning that for me, I, it took me a long time for that to sink in. I would say it didn't really start until maybe four or five years ago, really viewing God as that perfect father. And I had God in this box where honestly, he was very similar to my dad in, in some ways. And that is not who God really is. And I can remember being in, I was in a Christian bookstore when a bunch of the Christian bookstores were getting shut down four or five years ago. So I was there buying a bunch of Bibles. I love different translations of Bibles. So I was buying different translations. And there was this book on the shelf called Fathered by God. And the Holy Spirit was like, yeah, you need to read that book. And I looked at it and it was written by John Eldridge. And I was like, oh, I don't like John Eldridge. Because I read chapter one of Wild at Heart 20 years ago. And chapter one, he's a little bit rude to faithful old guys teaching Sunday school. So I was like, okay, John Eldridge is rude. I don't like this guy. I didn't read the rest of Wild at Heart. I've never read anything else by him. And I just assumed that he was a jerk and I didn't like him. Mm -hmm. So the Holy Spirit's like, okay, no, you need to read this book. And I'm like, no, it's John Eldridge. I don't like him. I'm not going to read that. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You need to read this book. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand. I don't like John Eldridge. (laughs) I argue with the Holy Spirit in the Christian bookstore for five minutes. And finally, I relent. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, this must be real. And the Holy Spirit's not going to shut up until I buy this. So I bought the book and I'm like, fine, I'll read it. You know, chapter one, I'm in tears. Like, it was just what I needed to hear of who God is and how he loves us as his children. And I think that we have to receive that Mm -hmm. from God before we can give that to our kids. Mm -hmm. 
we have to take care of ourselves and our relationship with God. We need peace and Sabbath if we are going to offer peace to our family, to our kids. Mm -hmm. To me, that feels very selfish. Like I'm going to take two days and go on a retreat and not be with my kids, not be with my family, not help my wife. And I'm going to do that for Adam so that Adam is strong and healthy in his relationship with God. And he is peaceful and restful so that I can go the distance in my parenting, so that I can go the distance as a husband Mm -hmm. and be a healthy, balanced, peaceful person. Uh, It's taken me a long time to begin to prioritize that because it feels selfish to take care of my relationship with God before I'm, you know, serving my family at home. Right. But making that a priority has been such a, such a game changer in my life and in the way that I parent and the way that I, it's increased my open handedness in my parenting. It's helped me let go of the illusion of control and to acknowledge that I can't control my kids. I can't do a parenting formula to get the result I want to see in my kids that I just need to be present with my kids. I just need to love them. You know, as my kids are graduating and they're moving out of the house, what is the one thing I want my kids to know? It's that I love them and I am always there for them. No matter what, no matter what choices they make in life, no matter, you know, who they marry, no matter what job they get, no matter where they move, like no matter what, I will always love them and I'm always there for them. Like that is the message that I want to send to my kids. And I think I've not been intentional about that until the last few years. Mm. And part of that's, you know, having older kids and having them graduate high school and move, go off to college and stuff. It's really helped me as my relationship with God has become a lot more peaceful and accepting and restful and full of Sabbath. That has given me the capacity to be a lot more open-handed in my parenting. And, you know, I've had a massive shift in my parenting. I I don't know if my kids would say uh, that it's happened or not, but in my mind, you know, my my dad was a, he was fun and authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And so as much as, you know, my wife and I were like, we're going to do it different than our parents. I became fun and authoritarian and that authoritarian side, man, I wish I had not done that. I began to shift away from it about five years ago. There was a book that a counselor recommended to me called Raising Human Beings by Ross Green. Okay. And I don't like most parenting books. I've not finished most parenting books because uh, I, I just can't get through them. And I feel like I don't really connect with the authors. And a lot of times they do set it up like it's a formula, but I'm like, no, I know that formula won't work. And um, so I've just struggled with parenting books. But mm-hmm. this book, Raising Human Beings, has been really helpful to me. and. It really positions you less of an authoritarian that's going to be like, this is what you need to do. And this, you need to follow this rule. And I'm going to prescribe everything for you in order for you to be successful. So instead of doing that, what does it look like for us to come alongside of our kids Mm. to acknowledge them as individuals and human beings? And I'm going to coach them. I'm going to advise them. I'm going to help them process through things. And so instead of giving them the answer, I'm going to help them process through to get to the answer on their own. I'm going to listen to them, process through the question. I'm going to ask, well, what do you think about this? Or what if you did it this way? Or, you know, just trying to ask them questions to get them to process through it. Mm -hmm. 
And for me to help them process through it instead of prescribing what they should do. That for me to move from an authoritarian to an equipper is, has been a massive shift for me. It's still really hard for me because I feel like, you know what? I'm in my forties and I know a lot of stuff and you need to just shut up and listen to me and do exactly what I say, right? I'm wise and I'm smart and I have life experience and you need to just listen. But that does not give them life skills. That does not help them problem solve in the challenges that they're going to face in life. Mm -hmm. And so how do I help them process through those things now while they're around their parents where I can, you know, advise them a little bit, but more than that, I can help them process and think through how to make those decisions on their own and even begin to become okay with them making decisions that I don't think they should make. Where it's like, you know what? I don't agree with this, but I'm going to support you in it. Mm -hmm. And let's see what happens. And you know what? No matter what happens, whether it goes well or doesn't go well, I still love you and I'm still going to be here for you. And if it doesn't go well and things fall apart, I'm going to help you pick it up. Because that's my dad and that's what I do. Mm. With what you just shared, there's so much richness there. And it, it reminds me, you know, being in the world of education, there's a big movement, I feel like right now, especially what our schools do, is called project-based learning. Um, and so you're kind of, there's an expression in the past where the teacher or the instructor has always been the sage on the stage who who just lectures, mm-hmm. right? Almost exclusively, who's giving the learners the information, mm-hmm. right? So we're shifting Hopefully schools are shifting. I know we have, but this project-based learning, but you're moving from that sage on the stage to quote, a guide on the side. It's a facilitator who helps the learners discover knowledge, right? And to steer them in ways that's going to help them. So you're listening to them. You're asking conversations. You're standing beside them, right? Mm-hmm. So everything you just shared sounds like maybe a shift. You, the parent, are the sage on the stage. You're lecturing, do what I say, the authoritarian where but then you have this shift, this mindset where you kind of became more of the guide on the side. Now walking mm-hmm. with your children, what do you think? All right, well, let's try this. Let's process that, right? And there's a movement to a book that a lot of schools and institutions use called Love and Logic, where kind of the, the natural consequence, like make a decision, but there's going to be a natural consequence to that, you know, but allowing the children to fall and make mistakes, learn as you go type mentality. But I think for you, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, it really takes a lot of, number one, vulnerability, self-awareness, putting your pride aside and acknowledging that I, I don't have all the answers. And I, I, every child is different. And so I don't know, everything you share, there's mm-hmm. so much there, but obviously it all comes into your relationship with Christ. And the analogy that everybody uses, and I, I'm even embarrassed to say it, but again, on the airline, if you don't take the air oxygen mask yourself, you can't give it to the person next to you, right? You can't give it to your child. Mm. So like with you, if you are not being locked in with your, with your junk and all your issues and bringing it to God and, you know, realizing who he is and, and with you, then you're mm. not able to really show up and be present for your wife and for your children. A lot of what you said was Good stuff. That's good. And that's good. Again, selfish for me <laughs> because uh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely taking notes, you know, like, okay, that's, mm. that's good. And, you know, and again, I don't know that I'm not, stereoty- I'm not trying to stereotype 
dads and men, but I think sometimes yeah. we, we want to fix things and okay, great, great, but I want to fix it. I want to fix it as opposed right. to like, right. just tap the brakes and listen. Yeah. You know, I even had to have a conversation later on with, with, with my dad. I mean, our, our way of connecting was, or is to some degree is going and grabbing barbecue, you know, here in Texas. And we would mm. go try different barbecue places. And one time I was just yeah. sharing with him a frustration and he went into advice or <laughs> fix it mode. And right. I, but, but I had I said, dad, I said, you know, I love you like no other, but I said, I, I don't need you to fix. I just need you to listen. Mm. And, and he took it. He took it. He's like, you're right. You know, yeah. but he immediately just wanted to fix it. I was like, I don't need fixing. I just need, I need listening. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to that. And, and I, and I think just you being self-aware, again, putting your pride aside and having that willingness to shift, um, I think mm. is huge. And uh, like you said, uh, kind of one, two of those quotes resonated with you, but what, as you were, again, as you were talking that C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis can't go back. You said, give yourself some, some grace. Um, I'll say mm. God, God gives us grace every second of the day, you know, yeah. so if, if he does that for us, who are we? And we need to extend that grace, not only to our children, but to our wives, mm-hmm. but more importantly to ourselves, but you can start where you are right now and, and you can change the end. Yeah. So again, anybody that's out there listening and whether it's a, a, a mom or a, a dad or whatever, and you feel like you've really screwed it up, you can stop now. I mean, you can change the ending. So now as far as to the next, and again, this is another macro, but with all of your experience overseas and interacting, and obviously you, you, you're on the front lines with, I'm sure, obviously with children's homes over in Nepal and in India, the layers that go behind that. And so I'm not sure if it's a fair comparison to what we see here in the States, but do you see any similarities with dads overseas and dads here and some of the biggest challenges that we have or we face? So I'm going to make a generalization, which I don't like to do, but I think India and Nepal, where where we're doing a lot of our work, I feel like there is a culture of Christianity and Christian family that is similar to the 1950s and 60s in America. And so, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the dads were very stoic, right? Mm-hmm. They were very hard workers, but they didn't like emotionally process a whole lot with the kids and weren't super intentional with the kids. They were providing for the kids. Like okay. that was the thing. Like we're going to provide to survive. And in the church culture, you know, a lot of the theology, kind of some of that, theology from the 50s and 60s, Baptist theology. And so I think the, uh, nothing against Baptists. I'm just saying like that kind of, you know, 1950s, 60s Christianity, that version of it is fairly similar in India and Nepal right now. You know, I think marriages are starting to change in India and Nepal where they've done, you know, it's been arranged marriages for a long, long time. And, you know, due to Western culture influence and Western movies, you know, this idea of love marriage is becoming a little bit more prevalent with the younger uh, generations. And so, you know, the older generations are struggling through that because they still want to do the arranged marriages and it's a, a lot different. The love marriages, many times they're not in a good place financially when they start that. You know, if the parents don't agree, then sometimes that causes division within the family. I feel like the dynamics are a lot different 
there than they are for us here. What I'm encouraged by is a, a lot of that Gen X and younger boomer generation, as parents, they're beginning to shift in a lot of the way that they parent and they've really grown in compassion and understanding and wanting to give more grace with the kids, uh, being more intentional with the kids. So that's starting to happen, but it's going to be a slow shift and it's, it's changing first in the cities and then it'll slowly trickle out to the villages. But a lot of, a lot of people are moving to the cities right now, really throughout all of Asia and really around the whole world especially in you know second third world countries people are moving to the cities because of the amenities and it, you know it's easier to find work and that sort of that sort of thing mm-hmm. and that's going to create a different kind of crisis in the rural areas but i think that really the parenting challenges that they're facing are how do we parent kids that are not growing up with the same level of tradition that their parents did they're growing up with media and the internet and social media and they're being influenced by all these other things in a similar way that is happening in America. And so how do we parent these kids that are really getting the, a bulk of uh, a lot of their influence from Western culture mm-hmm. that is not necessarily the tradition of the parents? And so I think there's a version of that that is similar to us in America, where our kids are growing up with a lot of influence from uh, you know peers in their schools from social media, from the internet, they essentially know everything because if they have a question, they just ask Siri and then boom, they get the answer to it. You know, when I was a kid, if you had a question, if your dad answered it authoritatively, you just assumed that was the right answer. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't question that at all. And, but now like kids are questioning their parents because they're like, no, I looked it up and it says this. And so the authority is no longer the parent. The authority on truth is now the internet. That's a massive shift. And then you've got additional influences from, you know, social media and movies and television, all that kind of stuff. So in the West, we're facing a lot of those challenges the same way that people in the East are because the kids are getting phones, they're getting internet at a very young age. And so that's a a real challenge that they're facing. Do you feel like though it's sped up because you just said that maybe the parenting mindset generally is still back in the 50s and 60s, right? But speed that up to where you have that, that 50s, 60s mentality. Now, boom, with technology, where maybe here in the States or in Western culture, you've had some warming up, you've had some technological advances. So we've it just seems like it could be like a, a really abrupt, mm-hmm. more abrupt yeah. to them of a 50s, 60s mentality, boom, now to the internet. Yeah. So, so for a family to feel really like, number one, what is this, uh, this mm-hmm. whole internet thing? And then now they're having to just wrestle with not only that, but what their kids are being exposed to. And it's magnified even tenfold, maybe. Yeah. On a side note, but with Serve Life and what you're doing, I mean, I know you're equipping pastors and you're equipping you know, those in the, in, in, um, the children's homes and stuff like that. Is there a parenting piece component to what you're doing in with Serve Life or no? Yeah. So we actually run three orphanages. So we've got parenting staff at those orphanages. Okay. Um, and, you know, I, I, I meet with them every time I go. I normally go to India and Nepal twice a year. And so I spend time with the staff. I'm always bringing them books. And so we, we talk through those. And then with the, the pastor training, we also do a family a family teaching in that training. We, t- we talk about marriage. We talk about family. We talk okay. about parenting. 
Okay. And then we also do an annual pastors conference where we invite all the pastors back for three days of ongoing training, equipping and encouragement. Hmm. And so we'll have those topics pop up there again. And then what we've been doing lately is every other year, we also invite their uh, spouse to join them. And so the pastor and their spouse are coming to the training. We're able to talk a little bit more about the family dynamic and marriage and those sorts of things when their spouse is actually there with them. Well, and I wanted to ask that because, you know, for the audience that doesn't, you know, hey, we're pastors, and but like you really are by what you just shared, you really are hearing on the front lines, not only the struggles of ministry, just that, mm-hmm. but also to your hearing maybe as they're humans and they're sharing their daily struggles of, you know, as a dad or a mom or a husband's, you know, wife. And you're, so you are hearing parents, you know, with their struggles too, you know, so even if our, yeah. our listeners here and driving around in Chicago or like, well, how's that relate? You know, but you are seeing that and having those conversations about what you just shared with those over, over there, you know, to hear yeah. um, their struggles too, as being a mom and her dad and a dad, even though it may look a lot different. So that's awesome. So Adam, is there a fun tradition that Nevin's family has or does or something that could be a fun nugget for somebody out there like, oh, that's really cool. I know, like, for example, for us, even though I have a stepdaughter who's in eighth grade, but we definitely eat dinner together, phones away. That's one of our traditions. And then we usually once a week Mm -hmm. have a a game night, putting cell phones away and we just roll out the Uno or whatever that is and just have a game night. Was there anything that y'all have done? One thing we've done annually is on New Year's Eve, a few times we've tried to get together with my sister and her family huh? and she's got three kids. And so, and I've got three kids and they're, they're similar in age. They're not exactly the same, but we kind of make New Year's Eve a weird holiday where we do games and we'll have basically like youth group, middle school type games. Yeah. And like chubby bunnies, that sort of thing. Yes. And it's all play. So all the adults have to do it as well. And then we also have a lip sync off where everybody has a lip sync song that they do. Okay. And so you're you're dancing to it, you're performing to it. I may have done a Britney Spears song with a cutoff shirt. I don't know. Things (laughs) like that, you know? Where it's just fun and being able to do that with extended family has been really special. And it's not the same when we're not able to get together with my sister's family. Like my kids don't even want to do it if we're not all together. So I love that. That's been a really neat tradition for us. You know, we had an interesting season during, you know, when COVID first hit Mm -hmm. and our, you know, our family was stuck at home and my daughters were in high school. And so they weren't able to go to school and we were just home every day, all day long. And mom and dad were working from home. And so my oldest, Carolyn, had this idea that what if we themed our evenings where we're actually doing something different every night? Because, you know, we were watching a lot of TV, that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So we had like an exercise night where we like go on a walk. We had a arts and crafts night where we would all do something artistic. Uh, we had a game night where we play games. We had a movie night where we do popcorn and pizza. And so that really helped us get through that season where we had a different activity every night and it was an activity we were doing together. We also had a a reading night. So, you know, we'd read and then talk about what we had read. And that was really interesting, you know, because some of us would be reading a novel, someone would be reading, you know, Christian leadership book. And and just to hear how the kids were processing through what they were reading was really interesting. I wish we still did that. (laughs) Uh, We don't. And, you know, my two girls are 
over 18 now. And so uh, my son who's 16 is at home and he plays football. And so, you know, he's got football almost every night now. Yeah. Um, but that was, a, that was a really fun season, kind of having those habits every, uh, every evening. And then I think just macro, like big picture, ask all three of my kids today, you know, going into this tonight, I'm like, what do you like about my parenting? Like, what do, what do you love it that your dad does? And two of the three of them said they really appreciated my intentionality. Mm. And so when I would like take them out for a meal or take them to a concert or take them to Starbucks and hang out and like just that level of intentionality with your kid, it means a lot to them mm. because they, they know that you're busy as, as an adult. Mm. They know that you've got work and small group and church and all this other stuff that you, you got to be doing. And, and then you got hobbies on top of that. And so for you to stop all that stuff and just go one-on-one -on -one with your kid and hang out with them, it means a lot to them to do that. That parlays into a habit that I did want to share with you. You know, my wife and I decided when our kids were young that we wanted to do kind of a rite of passage type activity with our kids. Mm -hmm. uh, one, when they turn 13 and two, when they turn 18. So what we've done with our kids, when they turn 13, we talk to them about the journey from uh, being a child to an adult. And as a human, you are mind, body, soul, and spirit. And so we went on a trip one-on-one -on -one with the kid. So, you know, the, the daughters got to go with the mother and my son got to go with me. And we went to a trip somewhere in the U.S. And we talked about those four things. What does it mean to grow and develop as a human being in your mind, body, soul, and spirit? And then we also asked friends and family to write notes of encouragement for that child along the lines of those four areas. And so over the course of that time, you know, we would give them a card from their grandparent and a card from their school teacher. And then I had, you know, six different talks prepared when my son and I, uh, we ended up going to Toronto in Canada. And it was just like, we did fun stuff. Like we walked around the city, you know, we did some shopping, we did some hiking. Toronto has an area that's like an Indian area. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these Indian restaurants and Indian shops. And we went there. It was really cool. But we had these intentional conversations during that time as well. And it was, it was something where they also had these cards and notes from us that they could keep while they were teenagers to look back at and be like, oh yeah, this is what we talked about. Yeah. So I think that was a good activity uh, when they turned 13. And then when they, they turned 18, we told them, you know, both parents are going to go with you when you're 18 and we can go anywhere you want in the world. And we're going to have you read a book before the trip, because we're going to talk about this book. And the book that we chose is called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And David Brooks is a New York Best Times author. He's written for the New York Times. And he went through a midlife crisis. He deconstructed and reconstructed. His marriage fell apart. He ended up divorced. He ended up finding faith and uh, eventually remarried. And so he kind of wrote a, wrote a book about like, what does it mean to be a mature adult? And what does it mean to achieve something in the second mountain of life? So the first mountain of life is the external. It's the business success. It's making a lot of money. It's buying a big house. It's, you know, achieving things in your work. And then, you know, people do that and they become rich. They become the CEO and they're still not happy. They, they're still alarming inside of them for something more than that. And the second mountain is what 
do you give back to society and to the world? And so what does it mean to be generous, to give of yourself in a way that's going to make an impact on other people's lives? And so this second mountain is about what does it mean to be the kind of human that lives into that second mountain that makes a difference in other people's lives? And so there's four areas that the book focuses on. One is vocation. And so looking at like uh, what kind of vocation uh, should you have and what does that look like in your life and what what meaning do you draw from your vocation mm-hmm. and what you know, having mentors in your life that speak into you as you're doing your vocation. So vocation is the first, marriage is the second. And so talking about, uh, you know, how, how do you decide who you're going to marry? What are the stages of intimacy in that marriage? And wh- what kind of life are you going to build together with this person? Third area is philosophy and faith, developing your intellectual capacity and commitments in life and developing significant faith. And having that purpose and meaning behind everything that you do. And then the fourth is community. What are the stages of community and how do we engage in our community mm-hmm. to, to make a difference, to have reciprocal relationships, to have encouraging relationships, building up each other? And what does that look like? And so the book covered a lot of areas that we already wanted to talk about that are adulting areas uh, and adulting topics. So we had our kids read that before the 18-year-old trip. And then my wife and I both went with them on that trip and kind of walked through the book with them and had them share, what stood out to you? What, what are some things that you underlined? What did you think about this concept? And really just tried to get them to, to talk, you know? And so th- that's been a meaningful habit for our family when they turn 13 and when they turn 18, that I think is something that they'll be able to take with them for their entire lives. And they'll be able to see the intentionality that their parents had with them in trying to help them to grow up and to become mature adults. I'll end it with uh, this scripture out of Ephesians 4, where it's you know saying that God's purpose was to equip God's people to work and serve and build up the body of Christ until we all reach the unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son. And God's goal, God's goal for us is to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. So that's God's goal for us, is for us to become mature adults And what does it look like to be a mature adult? Jesus. That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Jesus embodied that second mountain in serving other people. And so I desire that for my own life, for my own self. I want to be a mature adult. I want to be like Jesus. And I want my kids to do the same. And I want to do everything that I can to help them to become more mature adults and to help them follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Wow, Adam, that is that is powerful stuff, and and uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing that and that last portion right there. Um, and I think being intentional, you know, being vulnerable, being broken, you know, before God and and seeking Him first, um, and then how that then can relate to your wife and your spouse and to your children, and yeah, just being open and vulnerable and being intentional. As you said that, I'm so glad you brought that up. I think of you know my granddad in Galveston, who was just a legend in Galveston, and you know what I remember is the intentionality of him just for us going a Dairy Queen and grab a vanilla cone. You know, he took time out of his busy, busy schedule of being a mayor at one point and being a medical doctor. And But one-on-one time with me, I will forever, ever remember that. And then my dad, every Friday night, he would rotate. And so that Friday night would be date night with me. Wherever you want to mm-hmm. go, let's go. Your dad being the cham- head of the Chamber of Commerce in New Orleans and just 
a, a prominent figure in the city of New Orleans, but the fact that he took time out and uh, with my sisters, he would go and have a date night with you know my sisters, and he would open the door for her. He would open, mm. put, pull the tape, the seat out for her because he wanted to show yeah. what it was like to be treated and how she should be treated. And right. if, if a guy doesn't open the door or doesn't open this, then not even worth the second look. And so he wanted to mimic and be an example, you know, to my sisters. Right. And so again, it was all those things that by you saying that brought all that up of being intentional mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and being in the world of education and I never can replace, I never have tried to, but no matter how cool and fun and whatever, and, you know, I see these kids off sometimes more than their parents do during the week, but I can never replace that yearning for the approval of their parents and, and, and their mom and their dad. And, you know, there's something powerful. And then the rite of passage, you know, the bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs and our, with our Jewish friends, it, just that intentional you not only as a father or a mother that we believe in you and there's the surrounding cast of characters, you know, that also too are going to hold you accountable. They're going to pour into you. And so I love the fact that you shared that because there's beauty in that. And I don't know, mm. really, we really have that in the Christian faith, if you will, these intentional benchmarks in a kid's life that will forever stick with them. But Adam, this has been awesome. And I can't thank you enough for being just open and vulnerable and, and sharing and letting us peek a little bit inside your mind and in your family. And so I really... I thank you. I learned a lot from you. I wrote down all your books. I'm going <laughs> to save them and go through them. So Adam, thanks for bear crawling with me and uh, blessings to you and, and all that you're doing uh, around the globe, but also to uh, with your, your three prized possessions. Yeah, well, it was great talking to you, Ross. Thanks, man. We hope you enjoy this latest episode of Bear Crawl with Dads. From her brother, C.S. Lewis, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending.